So today we plan on covering all of chapter 10, which if you look at that, that's pretty long, pretty honking long, um, 48 verses here. And um, so why don't we stand up, we'll read the first four verses, and then I'll pray. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is Christ's Expanding Kingdom in the Earth. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank and praise you for this time that we have in your scriptures. I ask that you would use it for good in the hearts and minds of those who are gathered here today. That they would be built up in the faith. That you would help me to preach. And that you would seize the hearts of men with the goodness of your word, making them desirous to glorify you in the earth. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Be glorified amongst us, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So here in chapter 10, we see the expanding mission of the church in the earth. We see the expanding kingdom of Christ in the earth. The Jewish believers continue to realize that the gospel is not just for the Jews. The Jewish believers are going to continue to realize the gospel is not just for the Jews. First, they saw this when they saw the gospel was for the Samaritans. Remember that in our sermon in chapter 8? We explained that, what a huge deal that was. The angst that the Jews had towards the Samaritans. What? They're part of this? We also saw that they understood better the fact that what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is true. When he told them, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. They're good with that and all Judea, good with that, and Samaria. Probably just, you know, didn't really grasp what he was saying at that point. But there was all these, remember, little things that were being said to them for them to begin to accept this, that the gospel is for not just the Jew, but also for the Gentile. So he says, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Everyone. Everyone. And this was hard for the Jewish mind to accept. It was hard to embrace for the Jewish mind. It was even hard for the Jewish mind to contemplate such thinking. Because they have been taught this whole difference that we're Jews, we're better than everybody else. Even their temple had this little spot for the Gentiles and off to the side. Only the Jews could go on the main deal. So this was difficult. So difficult for the Jewish mind to embrace that look what the Lord had to do through the life of Peter to make it thinkable and accepted by the early Jewish believers. This is the story of how he the Lord, made it acceptable to their Jewish minds. So let's start here in verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called 
the Italian regiment. So the story starts with the location of Caesarea. Where was Caesarea? It was a port town on the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, me and my wife love maritime settings and going away to maritime settings. Rivers, lakes, oceans, doesn't matter. This is a, probably a beautiful little place, Caesarea. It's right on the beach, right on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. The Gentiles had built it into a magnificent city. They had used Herod the Great, their puppet, you know, to get everything done. They actually dug the harbor deeper to make it a major port town. Um, they built a temple there to honor Rome and Caesar Augustus. They built a break wall to protect the town from the sea. They constructed a huge amphitheater, built a magnificent aqueduct made of bricks, installed a garrison of Roman soldiers, and made it the Roman capital of Judea. In the midst of this very Gentile city is a centurion called Cornelius. Now, a centurion was a non-commissioned officer who had worked his way up through the ranks to take command of a group of soldiers within a Roman legion. He would be somewhat like a captain in our military. He was over a cohort, or what we would call a regiment, which was about a tenth of a legion. So Cornelius was over 300 to 600 men. So he had some importance as a centurion. The historian Polybius described the general character of centurions. Here's what he wrote about them. Quote, Centurions are designed not to be bold and adventurous so much as good leaders, of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive or start fighting wantonly, but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their post. Unquote. So the centurion weren't men of ambition. They weren't men of political ambition. They were the men that the rotten, politically ambitious men wanted to have in place to make sure they could keep everything the status quo. They tended to be men of better character than the ambitious, politically ambitious men of Rome's time, of all times. Cornelius was part of what was called the Italian Regiment. That his name was Cornelius points to the high probability that he was the descendant of former slaves. Cornelius Sulla, who was the dictator of Rome before Julius Caesar, liberated 10,000 slaves in 82 B.C. for his own political purposes, which included thuggery, to get what he wanted done there in Rome. And they all, all 10,000 of these slaves, took on the name Cornelius for him setting them free, and the name became common among their descendants. So there's a high probability that Cornelius was a descendant of former slaves. This Cornelius was a devout man. Look at verse 2. A devout man is what he's defined as, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, and prayed to God always. So Cornelius feared God, gave money to those in need, prayed to God. He clearly was impacted by the Jews in their faith. Look what his servants said of him when they met with Peter in verse 22. Turn up to verse 22 there. It says, and they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who 
fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. So Cornelius was a God-fearer. He didn't know the Lord, but he feared God. And look what happens. In verse 3, it says about the ninth hour, that would be about three in the afternoon of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your arms, alms have come up for a memorial before God. That's important to note. This God-fearer was noticed by God, and God is going to bring the revelation of Jesus Christ, his Son, to him. Understand that? Because of Cornelius' desire to know and serve the God of the Bible, the Lord is going to reveal himself to Cornelius. And look what happens. Verse 5, Now send men to Joppa, And send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, blue-collar worker, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius is visited by the angel of the Lord, he's told to go get this guy named Peter and he'll tell you what's going on. Meanwhile, look what happens to Peter. Verse 9, The next day as they, the two servants and the soldier, went on their journey and drew near the city, the city of Joppa, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object, this big sheet, was taken up into heaven again. Now the primary point of this passage regarding this vision was not about whether you can eat unclean animals or not, per Leviticus 11. Though the New Testament is clear that you can The primary point of this passage and vision is that the Gentiles, whom the Jews considered unclean, were able to be a part of the people of God also. That's the point of the passage. The gospel was not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. The gospel is for all men, all men. How do we know this is the primary point? Because of what Peter himself said in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Then he, Peter, said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. 
This was the point of the vision. God used the unclean animals, said, don't call them unclean. When I've called them clean, his whole point was to get Peter to see the Gentiles shouldn't be treated as you Jews have been treating them. That this gospel of mine is for all men, including the Gentiles. The Jewish mind was such that it took this dramatic vision to get Peter to even consider such a thought. That the gospel is for all men, even the Gentiles. It took this massive situation. It covers 66 verses in all. Chapter 10, chapter 11. And there, there had already been inklings towards it. Christ gave inklings towards it. We've already seen inklings towards it through the book of Acts. Now it's just full blown. Boof. And it's just hitting Peter. It's true. These little ideas that I thought, maybe this is more than just for the Jews. It's for everyone. It's true. It's finally hammered home to him because of this vision. So you have to understand this is big. And notice it took three times. The Lord did it three times. Repetition hammers something home. You ever notice when we show the photographs of the murder pre-born along the sides of the roads? I put the same photograph one after another. And newbies who always show up are like, well, you got the same photograph in a row. That's not good. Why don't we have a different photograph for each person holding the sign? And I point out to them because repetition drives it home. Repetition drives it home. So we show the same image. And so it is here three times to drive it home. Peter probably thought it at first to be some kind of test, right? He's just testing me here. You know, he's going to see if I, you know, if I'll eat, you know, the McRib, you know, type of a thing or something like that. And so, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not doing that. So he probably thought it was a test. This was a huge rethinking for the Jewish mind. Notice verse 17 starts out by saying, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. He's wondering. He's, he's contemplating. This is huge. This is a huge change of thought to the Jewish mind. That's why he's wondering about this. Now look what happens as our story proceeds. Verse 17. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, Three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. This is the providence of God in the affairs of men. This is tremendous. God's given Cornelius his message. He's given Peter his message. God is orchestrating this whole event. Why? Because this is massively huge for the Jewish believers to realize the gospel is for all men. All men. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. 
Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Two things I want you to notice about this. This verse 22. First, this confirms the Christian belief that if someone in some distant land truly has a heart after the Lord, the Lord will send one of his people to them with the message of the gospel. Like Cornelius. It is the duty of Christians to take the gospel to all men. We don't have to pray, should we, should I share the gospel? We don't have to pray, right? Should I take the gospel to these people? Should we go to this nation and bring the gospel? No, it's in holy writ. It's what we do. It's the mission of the church to take the gospel to all the men of the earth. Understand? So, it's the duty of Christians to take the gospel to all men, but if there be someone who Christians have neglected, who has a heart after the Lord, the Lord will send one of his people to them. There is no universalism. I've damned universalism from this pulpit time and time again. There is no universalism. No one gets in just because they were a quote-unquote good guy. They must believe in Christ. And that brings me to the second point. Secondly, notice Peter here in verse 22 is to give them words. He's to give them words. You see that at the end of verse 22? There's a, we've, you've been summoned to his house to hear words from you. We want to hear words from you. We don't want a bottle of water with your church's address on it. You know, we don't want you to just hang out and, you know, be a nice guy and then eventually maybe something will rub off on us and we'll just understand. We want words. We're to hear words from you. Remember our last sermon? Remember I said and showed from many proofs of Scripture that men must hear the gospel in order to be saved. That we must preach the gospel for men to be called unto him. Remember I repudiated the modern 21st century American Christianity notion of preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Words are necessary. We are to give men words Amen? We are to declare His words to them. His word, His law, His gospel. And that is what Cornelius' servants state. That Cornelius, look at that there in verse 22, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Amen? Look what Peter says in verse 42. As he goes into his sermon, once he gets to Cornelius' house, it says, And he, God, commanded us to preach to the people. We are to give men words. We must give men words. His words. So look what happens next. Verses 23 and 24. Then Peter invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. 
And the following day they entered Caesarea. So notice it took them longer to get back to Caesarea than it took the guys to get to Caesarea. Caesarea wasn't that far away um, from Joppa. So probably Peter had some people to stop by and say, howdy doody to, right? Or he had some errands to run along the way because it took a little longer for them to get back there. And it says in verse 24, when they get to Caesarea, now Cornelius was waiting for them. And then look what it says, and it called together his relatives and close friends. Remember when you came to know Christ? Wasn't it like you had to tell everybody, right? I mean, I th- that was always like for me. I, want, I couldn't wait to get out of Teen Challenge to tell all my relatives. Didn't take me long to get beat up and find out that they didn't really want to hear about Jesus. <laughs> I knew I wanted to tell them about Jesus. So he's got all his relatives, all his close friends. He knows this is big news. An angel of the Lord just pops into his room, tells him to go to this guy named Peter, whose surname is Simon. He's got words to give you. So he, he gathers her. He doesn't wait to see what he says. Make sure this isn't some whack job who's going to show up or something like that. He's putting his reputation on. He gathers them all in. He wants them all to hear the good news from Peter, directly from his mouth. Verses 25 and 26 says, As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. So this angel of the Lord had had a huge impact on Cornelius. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. Stand up. I myself am also a man. The word worshipped here in verse 25 is the Greek word proskuneo. And it can mean to reverence. It is used for homage paid to deity, to angels, to men. When you look at its use in the New Testament. The Catholics always say that they don't worship Mary. They only reverence her. When you visit Holy Hill, which I live on Holy Hill Road, so I visit it from time to time, spectacular views from up there. When you visit Holy Hill, the big Catholic shrine north of Milwaukee here, when you drive in the entrance, there is a statue of Mary. And little statues of children are kneeling before her at her feet. It's like a tradition in our home that as we're going by, I always inform my children. I point out the little statues kneeling to Mary and I say, but the Catholics say they only reverence her. And I say that in my smarly voice. I'm good at a smarly voice, and so I say it in a smarly voice as I'm driving by. But the Catholics say they only reverence her. Here in this passage, we see Peter being reverenced or worshipped by Cornelius. He falls at Peter's feet, and Peter doesn't dismiss it as mere reverence and allow him to bow down at his feet, does he? Rather, he picks him up. In fact, he tells him, stand up. I myself am but a man, just like Mary is but but a woman, a mere woman. We are not to fall down and worship any except God himself. We don't kneel and pray to any except God himself. 
The Bible is clear we are to have no other gods before him. Catholics are committing an act of idolatry when they worship, or as they put it, reverence Mary. Verse 27 goes on and it says here, And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Yep, this was a big deal. Verse 28, Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. This was a huge admission by Peter, that he should not call any man common or unclean. What he states here first, that it's unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company with or to visit one of another nation. That's what he had been taught all his life by his Jewish teachers, by the whole Jewish culture. This is what he had always known and had been taught God expected. That you wouldn't do that with these Gentiles. Which, of course, is not true to Scripture itself. It's something the Jews had concocted over the years. And yet, with all of that, remember, God's whole point was to bring all the peoples of the earth unto himself. In the Old Testament, stationary, racial, geographical people. In the New Testament, people of all tribes, tongues, everywhere. The mode shifted from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now it makes himself known. So here's Peter with all this thinking, all this teaching, his entire life, that what he's doing right now is wrong. Standing in Cornelius' house is wrong for him to be doing that. And yet with all of that, he states, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. That is huge. Do you know how huge that is? It's massively huge. And the implications of it are so huge for the whole world that a very presuppositional thought. All men are to come under the domain of Christ. All men, Jew and Gentile, are to come under the domain of Christ. Men can never coalesce under the state. History has proven that time and time again. But men can coalesce under Christ. Different tribes, tongues, nationalities, they can coalesce under Christ. They can under His rule. And all men are equal in His sight regarding how they obtain right standing with Him. All are able to obtain right standing with Him. And it is the same means for all to obtain right standing with Him. It is through Christ alone. This presuppositional thought in itself, huge implications in the earth, with the expansion of Christianity and Christ and His kingdom across the nations of the world, which all of modern-day Western Christianity is vomitously just throwing on the ground with their bogus form of pietistic Christianity. An absurdity. Unbiblical thinking. While they couch it and coat it with biblical thought, it's really unbiblical. 
Christ transforms individuals. He transforms nations. It's not an either or. Men can never find equality under the state, but they can in Christ. Communism, which claims equality, never brings it to men. Communism always fails. And there's a lot of talk in America today about equality, and sadly, it is almost always in this communistic sense that they talk about it. America's founders did not think of equality in that sense. I was reading John Adams this week. Listen to what Adams wrote on the equality of men. He said this, Although among men all are subject by nature to equal laws of morality, and of course I would say, because I've talked about natural law and its weak points, I would say all men are accountable to his law, God's law. It's not just a nature thing. The nature thing worked better for them back then because there was a Christian consensus throughout all Western civilization. There no longer is now. It doesn't work. It's God's law that all are accountable to, that all are held to. So anyways, he writes, Although among men all are subject by nature to equal laws and morality, and in society have a right to equal laws for their government, amen, the rule of law, that all are accountable to the law, whether rich or poor, whether white or black, whether a government official or a non-government official. All are subject to the rule of law. And in society have a right to equal laws for their government. Look what he goes on and says, Yet no two men are perfectly equal in person, property, understanding, activity, and virtue, or ever can be made so by any power less than that which created them. It wasn't this communistic sense of equality that's talked about today, that we're all the same, so everything should be just perfect. We should all live in the same house, kind of house. You got more money than me, give me your money. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'll use the arm of the state to beat the snot out of you to get your money. You know, I'm blue collar stock, I don't have a lot of money. I don't want anything to do with the communists. I'm from Detroit, they're everywhere in Detroit. Despicable. Socialism, ugh. Disgusting. This was not the thinking of the founders when they talked about equality, the nonsense that's talked about today. Rather, notice what the equality was that they were talking about, how everyone is subject to the law of God and how all have a right to equal laws for their government, that there's a rule of law. This is what they had in mind, not the communistic sense that's talked about in the universities today. So anyways, that's like an aside. Some people will love that. Other people will be like, What's he, where's, what? where is he going here? All right, so verses 29 through 33. Let's continue on. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Yeah, he did. After Peter experienced what he experienced, of course he came without objection. Praise God he came without objection. And he says, for what reason have you sent for me? He's still wondering. So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Yeah, that was the angel of the Lord. And said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner 
by the sea, blue-collar guy. When he comes, he will speak to you. When he comes, he will speak to you. He will give you words. He's going to give you words. Peter had to give the words. He had to open his mouth and employ his tongue and his lungs and give them words. Yes, it is necessary. Look at verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Shows no partiality. Peter spends the first three verses of his 10-verse Pracy. Pracy is, it's, this is like, we don't believe this was his whole sermon. It's like a summary of his sermon that Luke recorded here. But Peter spends the first three verses of this 10-verse Pracy of his sermon on this matter of God's impartiality. Look what he says in these first three verses. And this would, this would be why. Because the Jewish mind, he's still this is, still, this is a huge revelation to him. Peter's just coming to grips with this. The Gospels for them too? Could it be? Then Notice the first three verses. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace, through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Spends the first three verses talking about this matter of the difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Modern American Christianity likes to talk about God's unconditional love. You know, it says, notice in verse 34 there, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. No partiality. Modern American Christianity likes to talk about God's unconditional love, but this is utter nonsense. God's love is not unconditional. The thought is just dopey evangelical sentiment. It is not biblical thinking at all. When you say God loves you and his love is unconditional, do you mean no person will go to hell? I mean, just because God's love is unconditional, does that mean everybody goes to heaven? That's the conclusion one would draw. That's the conclusion this culture wants you to draw. It's the thinking that the church is aiding and abetting in the sinner who needs to see his guilt before God and his need for Jesus instead of making him feel good in his condition. God loves you. It's unconditional love. It's utter nonsense. There are conditions. You must repent and believe or you will go to hell. Plain and simple. There are conditions. His love is not unconditional. The truth is his love is unpartial. His love's not unconditional, but it is impartial. As Peter says here, it is for whosoever will but it is not unconditional. And Peter is pointing that out here. He says, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. His love for all men is unpartial. But it's not unconditional. And look at verse 35. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. 
This is not some proof text for universalism. No one is saved from their sin and saved from God's wrath any other way than through Christ. Scripture is repeatedly clear on that over and over again. Again, what this means is that if someone in some distant land truly has a heart after the Lord, the Lord will send one of his people to them with the message of the gospel. And that's exactly what happened with Cornelius here. Look at verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. God sends Cornelius his word. The word which God sent, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. We must give men words. They must hear the gospel. The word peace here in verse 36 should immediately bring up thoughts of Ephesians chapter 2 to you. Again, what he's addressing here, what he's dealing with as he's beginning his sermon that he's just realizing himself is this gospel is for everyone. Not just us Jews, not just the Samaritans, those half-breeds, even the Gentiles, the no-breeds. They have no Jewish lineage in them. The gospel's for them too. This was huge to the early church. It comes up in the book of Romans. comes up in other books of the New Testament, as well as in Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. For those of you whose minds are beginning to wane, I'm almost done. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and we're going to read to verse 18. It says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, talking about the Jews, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, this is the condition of the Gentile. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. There's that word, same word Peter used back here in Acts chapter 10, verse 36. For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace. And then look what it says, who has made both one. Who are both? Jew and Gentile. We're now one in Christ. There's peace between the Jews and the Gentiles now in Christ. Amen? And has broken down the middle wall of separation. What middle wall of separation? The Jews have built this dopey wall between the Jews and the Gentiles at the temple. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Jew and Gentile. Now Christian men. There's peace between Jews and Gentiles. There's not this enmity anymore. Peter can actually go into Cornelius' house. He can do more than that. He can eat with him. He can enjoy his... He can pray with him. And we never see like, okay, that's wonderful, Pastor. This was huge to them. This is a major transformation of thinking. 
And it has huge implications in the earth. Huge. Goes on and it says here, to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace. just like Peter was talking about. Preach peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we have, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. I'm a Jew and Gentile. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The Gentiles are part of the people of God. <laughs> this is like, mind-blowing. Why is he talking about this at the beginning of his sermon? Because it was, he was, Still coming to understand it while he was standing there. It really is true. I bet Peter was waiting. What's going to happen when I bring him the gospel? Probably having those thoughts. So it goes on here and it says in verse 37, That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem who they killed by hanging on a tree, his crucifixion. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly the proof that he is the Son of God, the resurrection. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he, Jesus, who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. And now look what it says in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter. Remember about six of them came with Peter? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Wow. And what were these words that they heard? when the Holy Spirit was outpoured on them. And as verse 46 is, they began to speak in tongues. It was what was said in verse 43. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was yet speaking that, they start speaking in tongues. They believed when they heard the gospel preached to them. They believed. And this is just like it was in Acts chapter 2. Right? In Acts chapter 2, when God first poured out His Spirit, they all spoke in tongues. The Jews and the proselytes were gathered there in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And these Jewish believers, 120 strong, began speaking in tongues when they obtain the salvation of the Lord. Here it is, the same thing with the Gentiles. 
showing how massively huge this was to the Jewish mind, how this needed to be confirmed to the Jewish mind. Gentiles are part of the people of God. And every one of us sitting here is a Gentile. Every one of us. I I know we have a visiting family back here. I don't know if they're Jewish, but I know none of us are Jewish. Okay, We're all Gentiles here. And God has made us part of the people of God. And that should make us weep with thankfulness that we're part of the commonwealth. Amen? And he has made access for us to the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, us Gentiles spend so little time in his presence, accessing him. It's like a massively huge thing, what has taken place here. And it's confirmed, confirmed to these Jewish believers. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Remember, they were baptized in water and then got the Holy Spirit. (laughs) So he's telling them back there in Acts 2. Okay? Showing once again, you can't be so bizarre that you try to book God in your little pet box. You know what I mean? It was all working. The Holy Spirit was regenerating men. That's what was going on there. So you're speaking in tongues first and then got water baptized, got water baptized and then spoke, whatever, <laughs> you know. This is like a huge deal. The gospel is for all men. The mission of the church is expanding in the earth. The gospel is expanding in the earth. Christ's kingdom is expanding in the earth, going to the ends of the earth, to all the nations of the earth. It's for all men. Amen. And the crazy thing about it all is he's made it incumbent upon us to bring it to the peoples of the earth. And every one of us here should consider before God, where do you want us? For some of us, I I love the mission field. I wanted to go on the mission field. And God's like, you're staying right here in America, right? There's plenty to do right here. But for others of you, he may want you to go to other nations, to other peoples of a foreign land, to bring his law, to bring his gospel, to bring his word to them. And every Christian should consider that before Christ. What do you have for me, Lord? What do you want me to do? We should all want our lives to count for him. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for this time in your word. We thank you that you've preserved your scriptures down through the centuries, that we might know your ways and your thoughts. We thank you, O oh God, for those who hazarded their lives in days past regarding the copying of your scriptures, preservation of it. Lord, I just ask and pray that we would take time each day to read your word, to wash in your labor, 
cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, to be built up in the faith. Your words are life. Lord, I just ask and pray that we would be your faithful ambassadors in the earth, making your law, word, and gospel known to men, that we wouldn't keep this to ourselves under a bushel, but that we put it on a candlestick, bright, make it known to men that we would speak. Lord, may our lives live in accordance with your word. May we preach you both in word and in deed, but may we see, O God, that we must use words. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you would be glorified through each one here, built up each home in the faith, help each man to be a priest to his home, opening your word to his wife and to his children. May they speak of the things of you, O Lord, as families. Be glorified, I pray. Keep our hearts hungry for you, I ask. And may we see men radically transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit in the days ahead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise his name. Uh, You could be seated. And we're going to take communion at this time. And you can feel free to take communion with us. Um, You don't have to be a member of this church to do so. But you do have to be a Christian. So we ask that if you're not a Christian, that you not take communion as only believers are to observe the Lord's table. But if you're a believer, feel free. You don't have to be a member of this church or something like that to partake here. Uh, Table's open to all believers. And we observe the Lord's table every week at Mercy Seat. And we do that for a number of reasons. One is it's the tradition of the church or the pattern laid out by the early church. Every week they gathered, they would observe the Lord's table And so we do too. And we also do it because we need to be reminded of this great salvation that it's always only through Jesus plus nothing whereby God accepts us. Whether you're a Christian for five seconds or 55 years, it's the same. You can only meet with the Father through Jesus plus nothing. And this time at his table reminds us of that deep theological fact because there's only two elements at his table. The fruit of the vine representing his shed blood the bread representing his body, and nothing else. There isn't these two elements plus a list of all my good works or a list of all my holy living. It's just these two elements, showing it's through Jesus alone whereby God accepts us. The good works that we do, the holy living that we demonstrate, are the result of our saving faith. They're the fruit or the evidence of our saving faith. In other words, we don't do good works to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do good works because we have obtained his acceptance. Amen? And this time at his table reminds us of how great a salvation it is. The Apostle Paul wrote of this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The sole means of acceptance with God is found through Jesus Christ. What he did at Calvary 
we refer to as the finished work of Christ. We should have been put to death for our sins. God sent his son as a propitiation to die in our place so that if we will turn from our sin and believe in him, God will forgive us of our sin and we obtain right standing with the Father, have fellowship with him. And the writer of the Hebrews therefore calls it a great salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank and praise you for this time at your table. We ask, O Lord, that we would think well on this great salvation, how that while we were yet sinners, you loved us. Lord, we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you regenerate us. We are new creatures in Christ. And Lord, I just ask and pray that we would live in faithful service to him who died in our stead. For surely we should have been put to death for our sins. But he died in our place. May we live in service with the days you give us here on earth in service to him who died in our stead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Let's stand up and we'll close in prayer. Father, I rejoice in you and give thanks and praise to you for this time together as a congregation. I ask and pray that you build each one up in the faith through what was done here today. I pray you use each one this week as they go about their daily lives, O God, both in their homes, use them for good in the lives of others and also out in the marketplace. Keep our hearts hungry for you, desirous of you, I ask. May they enjoy you this day, O God. May they enjoy you. That is our chief end. We live to glorify you and to enjoy you. Pray they enjoy time with their families today, also or with other believers. Use us for your purposes in the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May Christ be praised. God bless you.